from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Diego Pirillo of the Italian Studies Department discussing his book, The Refugee Diplomat, Venice, England, and the Reformation. He is joined by Kinch Hoekstra of the Department of Political Science. Thanks, Tim. Um, thanks very much. Uh, in the wake of the news about those Ticketmaster necessary events, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome the Duri e Puri, the, 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 the scholars uh, who, who've, who've uh, gathered here today. I'm really pleased to uh, introduce very briefly uh, Diego Perillo and his wonderful new book, The, the Refuge, Refugee Diplomat, Venice, England, and the Reformation. As many of you know, uh, Diego is a, an associate professor here in Italian studies, having made his way westward after his doctorate uh, from the Scuola Normale Superiore. Um, and he's the author of another book on philosophy and heresy in the late 1500s, and he's the editor of a book on Giordano Bruno. He's also uh, the author of over 30 articles and chapters on Tasso, Campanella, Paolo Sarpi, the readers of Machiavelli, and things like neo-Stoicism, tyrannicide, republicanism, magic, uh, the political and religious aspects of the encounter with the new world, and much else besides. It's very rich work um, that treats and often combines uh, history, philosophy, uh, politics, and religion. Rather than attempting to summarize the book, um, uh, which is not what you came for, um, I'm going to turn immediately to asking Diego just a few questions um, uh, so that the person with the greatest relevant expertise can, can talk about it. So Diego, for, my first question really has to do with um, the striking fact that this um, book on uh, refugees was written at the time of a crescendo in what's been called the refugee crisis. Um, we're you know, just the, the, some we're confronted with news um, on a daily basis about uh, refugees in our current world, and the, the sort of even some of the simplest facts are, are pretty overwhelming. There are 68 million, according to the, the UN, there are 68 million forcibly displaced people in the world. 25 million or more of those are characterized as, or classified as refugees. Um, 45,000 people a day are forced from their homes because of persecution um, and, and fear of violence. And I just um, wondered, in, in, in that context, reading your book resonated in all sorts of ways, both because of that situation and also because of the varied political responses that we see from host nations and from those who refuse to be host nations and the, the, the politics of all of that. And so I was just wondering what um, you took to be, you know, well, why, why in this moment did you write a book on refugees? And um, what, if anything, do you take your contribution to the refugee question in the book to be? Thank you, Kinch, for the question and for the introduction. Uh, let me uh, start by saying also that I'm delighted to be here. It's a great honor to present my book at the Townsend Center, and thank you to all of you for being here uh, today. 
Um, I want to start very briefly by tracing the history of this book, and then I, uh, I'll, uh, I'll go back to your question. So um, my interest in religious refugees, in religious heterodoxy, is not new. started a long time ago in Pisa, uh, where I was a student. Uh, and yet, I want to emphasize that this book was uh, conceived and written at Berkeley. Uh, in my time at Berkeley, where I was so lucky to have interlocutors such as yourself, uh, such as uh, Tim Hampton, who's hosting us today and who was absolutely crucial in the writing of this book, and many other friends and colleagues. Uh, Albert Ascoli supported this project throughout its different stages. Uh, Ethan Shagan uh, could not be here today because of teaching obligations, but he was also a very important interlocutor. And also, uh, I cannot list all the colleagues and friends who supported me, but let me say thank you at least to the uh, REMS, to the uh, early modern community uh, at Berkeley, to the Institute of International Studies, to the Hellman Family Foundation for their support, and also, uh, last but not least, to the, my department, to Italian Studies, to my colleagues and to my students who gave me support and feedback in the past few years. Uh, and also, I want to mention also Mahinder Kingra, the editor-in-chief of Cornell University Press, who, um, uh, as a book historian, I know very well that a book is not simply the text that is printed in it. A book is also a material object, and so I want to compliment Cornell for the, for the final uh, product. Uh, but um, to go back to your question, so why a book on refugees today? As you mentioned, uh, refugees today are omnipresent in the news. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, there are more people displaced today in the world than at any point since the Second World War. An estimated 66 million are currently displaced either within their home countries or abroad. So my first goal was to, um, as an historian, was to challenge, was to engage with the current refugee question, but also to show that the, to challenge, in other words, the, our presentist approach with the uh, refugee question. And so I wanted to show with this book also that the refugee question is not something unprecedented. It's in fact an historical phenomenon. Uh, our epoch is not the first to struggle on how to define the status of the refugee or how to treat, man um, how to manage refugee flows. And in fact, let me just mention that the word refugee um, uh, comes into the English language in the 17th century, at the end of the 17th century, as a translation of the French word refugié that indicated the French Protestants, the Huguenots, who uh, had been expelled from France by Louis XIV. Um, and so, uh, in my book, I try to argue that the uh, refugee question has a very long history and that we can uh, look at the Reformation, the age of the Reformation as the age of refugees. Um, one, um, there are other historians, for example, a Canadian scholar, Nicholas Terpstra, suggested to reframe the age of the Reformation and to reconsider the Reformation as the moment in European history in which the refugee became a mass phenomenon. And so in this perspective, I think it's very interesting to rethink the Reformation and to look at this moment in European and world history, not simply as an attempt 
to rediscover the origins of Christianity, but also uh, as Europe's first grand project in social purification. And um, while I'm trying to uh, create a dialogue between past and present, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that history should be considered magistra vitae. This is not what I'm saying. Um, I just believe that by um, a better knowledge of diplomacy's past can be uh, useful today uh, and also to rethink the future of international relations. And so in the end, I think that the um, diplomacy shaped not only by its present form, but also by our awareness of its past <coughs> and by our expectations about its futures. All right, thank you. So one of the things that I found most striking in the book was your focus on the question of the agency of the refugee. And that, to me, is very striking in, the, in, this, in our current political moment because it seems to me, anyway, that those who I would characterize as anti-refugee typically are perfectly happy to ascribe agency to refugees. Um, but it's, it's agency of a particular kind. It's a villainous uh, agency. It's the uh, criminal agency. Whereas those who uh, would um, promote a more humanitarian politics toward the refugees or even a, 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 a substantial politics of the inclusion of refugees within citizen bodies of host countries um, uh, tend more to regard refugees or present refugees as passive, as um, uh, subjected to the forces of persecution uh, and fear um, and um, uh, as a matter of necessity uh, uh, being expelled or fleeing from, uh, from those forces. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, your reconstruction or recapturing of the agency of these particular refugees, perhaps by illustrating this with a, an example or, or, or a few examples. Absolutely. So that's also a, um, a central point in my, in my book. Um, so um, with this book, I also try to challenge uh, one of the dominant representation of refugees today in media, in the media, but also in academia. Uh, so, uh, as you uh, as you mentioned, uh, one of the um, most common way in which we frame refugees, uh, we we think of them as passive subjects of state powers, as victims, and that's not only the case of the news industry. That's also often the case of. Um, uh, the academia. Yeah. I'm thinking especially of uh, um, Giorgio Agamben, uh, who um, uh, looked famously at, at refugees as the symbol of the uh, bare life, nuda vita, as the uh, subjects, victims of biopolitical power. Yeah. So in, with, in this book, I also try to challenge this narrative, and I try to recover the agency of refugee. Uh, the, the limited agency that refugees exercised, especially on international relations in the early modern period. And let me uh, give you a couple of examples just to um, uh, clarify what I'm, what I'm saying. So uh, there are especially, there are three uh, areas of early modern diplomacy uh, in which I believe refugees were especially influential. 
um, information, transculturation, and communication. So first of all, information, and by information I mean intelligence gathering. So um, it was, uh, there was a common place in the Renaissance in the early modern period for which the ambassador was presented, uh, first of all, as an intelligencer, as someone who um, was supposed to gather fresh news and transmit this information to his prince, to his government. Uh, we can see that, for example, in uh, this beautiful portrait by Sebastiano del Piombo, a portrait of Federica Rondelet, the, Habsburg, um, the famous Habsburg ambassador. And here, um, Federica Rondelet is uh, shown next to his two secretaries, opening reports, reading reports, or dictating reports that he was supposed to send back to his court. And so the ambassador in the Renaissance in the early modern period was, first of all, an intelligencer. Um, and yet, I think, uh, I, I think it's um, what we uh, tend to forget is that the early modern period, the information society in the early modern period was not centralized yet around the sovereign state. And so the, um, there was a very complex information society uh, organized around many competing knowledge communities. So refugees functions, function precisely as such a knowledge community. So they used information to navigate the perils of exile. Um, they used information to create uh, bonds, ties with powerful patrons, and so on. But the second area uh, in which I think refugees were especially influential is uh, transculturation. So in this book, I also look at refugees as key cultural intermediaries between Italy and Protestant Europe. Um, the culture of Renaissance Italy uh, arrived in Protestant Europe, especially because of these refugees. Um, but they also, uh, they mediated not only between South and North, but also between North and South. So they introduced into Italy many uh, Protestant authors, Martin Luther, John Calvin, James I. And then finally, the, um, the last uh, area of early modern diplomacy that I think demonstrates the active role played by refugees is political communication. So in other words, refugees did not only serve Protestant patrons, providing them with uh, information or books, but the refugees also try to influence, to affect uh, European politics. Uh, so the refugees used uh, information and books to leverage more powerful actors and to um, advance their own political agenda. And as I try to show in this book, uh, many of these refugees, many of these Italian philo-Protestants, uh, believed that um, Venice could be transformed into an Italian Geneva. So they believed that uh, um, it was possible to produce a religious schism in the Republic of Venice. Venice, as, um, as you might know, because of its ties with Germany, was the gateway of the Protestant Reformation into Italy. And so uh, for, some, for some decades, these political and religious options was not um, uh, only an utopia. Uh, and so many of these refugees, I think, uh, they um, tried to uh, bring the Reformation into Italy via Venice. Just to, just to follow up on the question of 
um, the agency of these refugees, do you think that we have a greater conception of their agency because of your selection of a pretty elite set of refugees, a you know, highly literate set of refugees? Is that, or do you think there's actually something about the framing of the refugee at that time versus this time? Or do you have a view about that? Um, so I think one, uh, one of the, um, um, definitely one of the ways in which refugees conquered uh, an important role, a prominent role in early modern Europe was their cultural capital. So uh, the refugees, the, all the different case studies that I discussed, analyzed in my book, uh, many of these refugees belong to the intellectual elite of early modern Italy, and so they used their cultural capital to uh, integrate in the host countries, to present themselves, to create uh, relationships with powerful patrons. Uh, and in fact, if we look at uh, many uh, Renaissance Italian texts, published in early modern England, in the age of Shakespeare, Machiavelli, Tasso, Sarpi, and so on. Uh, most of these texts were in fact published, edited by refugees. And so I think we, um, even early modern historians, I think tend to neglect the importance uh, that, um, of these refugees in uh, the translation of the Italian Renaissance uh, abroad. But also, I just want to uh, add one more detail. So I think that um, um, one of the reasons why I um, decided to focus on refugees and why I um, think that these um, individuals were so interesting is that they did not simply publish or edit um, Renaissance texts abroad, but they also uh, they tried to control their reception. So adding prefaces, marginalia, marginal notes. And so they uh, forced um, English and Protestant readers to read uh, Italian text in a certain, in a particular way. And the, the title of your book is The Refugee Diplomat. We've been focusing on the refugee part. But I wonder if you could um, say something about what you mean by this category of the refugee diplomat. And um, perhaps by situating that with regard to what you take to be it, how, it's, how it sits with relation to diplomatic history. And in your book, you characterize what you call old diplomatic history vis-a-vis -vis versus new diplomatic history. And, and you seem to be distinguishing what you're doing not just from old diplomatic history, but in some ways even from new diplomatic history. Mm -hmm. um, so with this book, I... Um, I intended to enter the, the current debate on new diplomatic history. So uh, diplomatic history is a very old historiographical genre, was born in the 19th century, um, in Ger mostly in Germany, and was also founded um, on the myth of the state. So many diplomatic historians uh, and scholars, philosophers, we um, think of uh, Hegel or Max Weber, they um, regarded the state, the modern state, as the end of history. So that was a central uh, idea, central conviction for diplomatic historians, the state as the end of history. Now, luckily, history is not over yet, as we know, and uh, we all know that today this paradigm is in crisis. So globalization has challenged the, the centrality of the state in international relations. And uh, today we are more familiar with the importance of non-state actors. Uh, 
Uh, and in fact, scholars today, um, experts of international relations, uh, speak of a shift from club to network diplomacy. So in other words, uh, scholars of international relations argue that uh, the 21st century diplomat uh, should be able to operate into two different worlds. On the one end, in the traditional world of club diplomacy, the traditional world of state powers, but on the other end, in the new emerging network society made by um, non-state actors, such as international organizations, civil society, social media, news platforms. And just to make an example, I want to uh, mention uh, Wikileaks, not a state, but still an important player in international relations today, as we know also from the investigation into the Russian involvement in the American election. But to get to my point, um, so globalization has reshaped not only international relations, but also historical studies. And so globalization was at the origin of a new field of research called today new diplomatic history, a field of research that has questioned the uh, traditional narrative about diplomatic history, has challenged the centrality of the state, and has recovered the um, multifaceted world of agents, intermediaries, go-betweens, who um, engage in diplomatic activity uh, on the ground together, or sometimes also competing with official representatives. So my contribution to new diplomatic history in this book was to recover, again, the agency of refugees. Hence the title, The Refugee Diplomat. In other words, so concentrating on apparently marginal figure, such as refugees, my book uh, um, was an attempt to rediscover how diplomacy worked in the early modern period, not only within, but also outside of formal channels, uh, looking at underground networks and individuals without a formal appointment who were able nonetheless to move across religious and linguistic borders, often also adapting their own identities to uh, changing political context. So that, that focus on the informal networks rather than the formal, I suppose, is uh, the background for the other poll in the title, or in the subtitle, actually, which is the not, not that between the diplomat and the refugee, but that between Venice and England. Mm -hmm. Could you connect what, what you've just said with the choice of the focus on Venice and England, you know, why, why look at England and Venice rather than the Neapolitans in Spain? Or mm -hmm. something? No, that's also an, an, uh, a very important point. Thank you for, uh, for this question. So the, uh, my whole book is in fact uh, fo uh, focuses on a, um, on a case study, uh, on the uh, history of diplomatic relations between Venice and England in the 16th and early 17th century. Why? So we all know that Venice occupied a very special place in the English imagination. Every reader of Shakespeare is aware of that. We all know that the myth of Venice was very important in early modern England. Uh, the idea of Venice, of the Republic of Venice, as the ideal constitution. We find that in James Harrington, William Penn, in, in many um, early modern English utopias. But what I think we do not know is that the, uh, for many years, the, uh, there were no official diplomatic relations between Venice and England. And so my book uh, is a, 
uh, is a work, uh, is a study of diplomatic history, but in fact the book focuses on a long diplomatic crisis, on the suspension of diplomatic uh, relation between the Republic of Venice and early modern England. In fact, the English embassy in Venice closed in 1556 and reopened only in 1603, almost 50 years later, only after uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth I. So for the entire reign of Elizabeth, there were no official diplomatic contacts between Venice and England, um, mostly for religious reasons. So the Reformation was the main cause of this diplomatic crisis. What I try to uh, argue in this book is that uh, diplomacy continued in the underground, behind the scenes, through the work of refugees. So in the absence of official diplomatic representatives, refugees allowed diplomacy to continue in the underground. And so one of the uh, large questions that I try to answer with this book is um, how do states communicate in the absence, in the absence of formal diplomatic channel? Uh, a question that I think is still relevant for us today when we think of diplomacy between US and North Korea, US and Cuba, um, informal ambassadors are still important for us today. Yeah, so with the, the lens of the old diplomatic history, someone who was told that you were focusing on the diplomatic history of Venice and England precisely at this time would think you're a very lazy historian or it was going to be a very short book, right? <laughs> but, it's, but it's precisely because there are no formal diplomatic relations at that time that you're able to um, uh, regard the informal channels really as the the ones, the, the only ones that are counting, because there aren't the formal ones, right? So, I mean, the, focusing on that underground diplomacy, as you just called it, um, also um, makes me ask a, uh, perhaps a final question here, and then we'll open it up, which is about the range of sources that you therefore have to use. Mm -hmm. um, there are uh, diplomatic relations that you, uh, you, you look at, but there, there are also book historical um, you know, marginalia. There are literary uh, texts that are commented on, and on and on. There's a very wide range of sources. But perhaps the most uh, intriguing to me is the focus on, um, or your use of, the, um, the archives of the Inquisition. And it, 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 at first glance, that may look surprising, because you've got the relation, you're talking about the relations between England and Venice. And Rome might be thought to be kind of pretty much off to the side. And so um, perhaps you could talk about the, the importance of the view from Rome. But um, more particularly, I'm interested in hearing you talk about uh, your marshalling of the different sources that you rely mm -hmm. on in the book. Thank you. Um, so while I was writing this book, I also I quickly realized that one of the problems that uh, any scholar of diplomacy has to confront is the overabundance of sources. Um, and it's not a coincidence that the early modern period saw the creation of the archive because the um, closer contacts between states in the Renaissance in the early modern period produced an enormous amount of documents, of text, of information. And so already early modern governments, governments had the problem to uh, where to store, how to order this enormous amount of information. Um, I uh, relied um, on um, 
three or four main group of sources. I don't want to take too much time, I want to leave time for the discussion, but let me uh, mention at least uh, uh, some of them. Um, so, first of all, I look at um, diplomatic records, diplomatic letters between Venice and England. This is one of the few, there are not many, but one of the few letters that Elizabeth I wrote to uh, the Venetian Senate uh, in the attempt to re-establish diplomatic channels, an attempt that in the end ended up in a failure, but is still uh, very relevant for the, for the historian. I also uh, look at many um, uh, letters and reports by uh, Venetian ambassadors, relazioni, but also other reports. As you can see, many of them are uh, in uh, cipher, uh, in code, because they, of course, why? Because they contain very relevant, very important information. Uh, luckily for the modern scholars, many of them were uh, deciphered already in the 16th century by experts, like the Republic of Venice had experts who uh, could uh, decipher many different codes. And so I used some of these um, official diplomatic records. But since my main focus was on refugees, I also uh, I tried to expand the range of sources traditionally used by diplomatic historians. For example, I look at um, um, copies of Venetian diplomatic documents copied and annotated by refugees. Uh, and this, I think, is interesting for many reasons. First of all, because it shows how um, um, there was a market for information in the early modern period. So the early modern period uh, saw the transformation of information into a commodity. There was a market for news, for intelligence. Information was a commodity that could be bought and sold. And many of these refugees uh, made a career out, out of it. Uh, but it the refugees did not only copy and sold uh, diplomatic documents, they also annotated diplomatic documents. As you can see, for example, fr from this example, uh, in which one of these refugees uh, that I studied in my book, Giacomo Castelvetro, copied and then annotated uh, relazioni by Venetian ambassadors. And so looking at uh, marginalia, at marginal notes, we can also recover the political ideas the uh, expectations of refugees and of groups that were, uh, who were excluded from active politics, but who tried nonetheless to play an active role in uh, pre-modern diplomacy. This is Castelvetro talking about the Onesto Machiavelli. Exactly, uh, exactly. And so this is a great example because it's an um, Italian philo-Protestant who is defending Machiavelli in Protestant Europe from the black legend, uh, arguing that Machiavelli um, is in fact a Republican author who wrote Il Principe to unmask the logic of politics and to educate the um, citizens in Europe on the actions of princes and governments. Excellent. Thank you very much, Diego. And I'd be keen to open up the, the floor. Perhaps I can recognize people and you can answer sure, a question. Sure. Yes. very interesting. Um, so one thing I was wondering in terms of uh, the sorts of documents you looked at, um, in terms of um, English-Venetian relations, one thing that comes to mind is that there were a lot of travelers like Thomas Coriat. 
um, during that time who went back to England and published their extremely eccentric at times accounts of um, what they saw or the people they spoke to. And I was wondering if that figured into your discourse on the diplomacy um, or even if there were other perceptions of the same texts in Venice where people like Coriat visited. Um, so I was wondering if that was a part of your discussion. Yeah. Um, so I, I also used in part uh, travel accounts. Um, Thomas Coriat is the most famous one, uh, but there are, um, um, some other are also very interesting. There is a History of Italy published by William Thomas, a Welsh scholar in the 1540s, I think. Uh, a very important uh, guidebook to Italy, which was very influential, was used by Shakespeare, and we know that the, um, the History of Italy by Thomas was the most influential guide to Italy available to Tudor readers. Um, uh, these travel accounts contain um, useful information, but many of these uh, travelers um, visited Italy when the English embassy was open. So Thomas Corriott was hosted, for example, by Henry Wooten, the famous uh, English ambassador, um, and we historians used Thomas Corriott also to, um, um, to study the, um, the, um, the actions of, the, of, um, uh, of Wooten, his attempt to uh, spread Protestantism in Venice. But um, when uh, the, after the English embassy closed in 1556, was, it was harder for, at least for, um, for English Protestants to uh, visit Italy. Uh, of course, they, um, there were many uh, English Catholics also active in Italy. Uh, but that's something that uh, remains in the background of my book. Oh. So uh, I'm struck by this quotation that you have up <laughs> on the board, um, uh, on the screen. And I, I wanted to ask, so in, in many ways you presented the relationship of these, uh, uh, these refugees as essentially a positive one, of, of being well-received. And I, I wonder, though, that how exactly that matches up with the idea of an open network, where, in fact, uh, on the one hand, they could be seen as, as uh, a channel to communicate, but on the other hand, they could be seen as spies, or they could see, be seen as representing the Catholic uh, secretly representing the Catholic position. And I, I just wondered, and it, it just occurred to me now, that in some sense, the, um, these defenses of Machiavelli, which we tend to put into a history of the reception of Machiavelli and then say, these are two different ways of looking at him, but that in some sense, the defense of Machiavelli is also a defense of themselves. Um, bec because Machiavelli is so closely uh, used, uh, identified by in the English uh, uh, public discourse with Italy, with, uh, with the papacy, with the sort of nastiness of Catholicism. No, absolutely. No, no, I, um, um, uh, if I can start from the, uh, the, your first observation, also that's, that's an important point. So um, um, many of the histories of the lives that I try to recover in my book did not end uh, with a success. 
so, uh, and in fact, that's an important point that I, I need to emphasize. Many, all of these refugees, in fact, did not have a formal diplomatic appointment. So they did not have diplomatic immunity. And that's why they, um, um, many of them ended up in the hands of the Inquisition. Uh, and they, um, they, their role was very dangerous. They, they really uh, occupied a very dangerous position. Uh, but also, I think the, um, um, I, I agree. So this defense of Machiavelli is in part, at least, also a defense of their own role. And I think what, what I, the only thing that I would add is that the, this, uh, I would say this is not only a defense of Machiavelli, but this citation perhaps uh, su um, suggests that the, um, at least some of these uh, refugees uh, wanted to... Um, um, influence the European public sphere, so to speak. And so there was a very conscious attempt to unmask the Arcana Imperi. That's why I think they, they were interested in Machiavelli. That's why they read Machiavelli in this light. Almost at the same time, Alberico Gentili is also giving us a very uh, heroic Machiavelli. Exactly, exactly. And so Alberico Gentili is a very famous lawyer, a professor of civil law at Oxford. And uh, uh, this other refugee, Giacomo Castelvetro, was the editor of Alberico Gentili's famous De Jure Belli, the treatise on the law of war. Yes. Thank you, Diego. It's wonderful to see this uh, bearing fruit traveling between um, Venice and England diplomatically. But let's try another consequence that one, one might take from your presentation, that this is not about the globalization of something, it's about the Italianization of the rest of Europe. After all, merchants, clergy, travelers of various kinds, mention my old friend the exiles uh, in Italy and the kinds of measures that were uh, designed to control or manage them all have their origins not in the Renaissance, not after 1453, as Garrett Mattingly liked to say many years ago when I was an undergraduate, but in the Middle Ages. The Tre Corone, for example, of uh, Florence are all writing in exile. Boccaccio, or at least away from home. Certainly uh, Petrarch, uh, certainly Dante, and in a way, uh, Boccaccio as well. So what do you do about this recovery of old patterns, of old styles, of old institutions, of old connections, rather than the creation of uh, something new and different. In a certain way, you still privilege the Renaissance by starting your account there rather than moving backward. Um, so the, um, the Italianization of Europe. So you, you mentioned the Italianization of Europe. I think that's uh, definitely something I uh, try to clarify uh, in, uh, in my book. Um, uh, as I mentioned already, many of these refugees were crucial in the uh, spreading of Renaissance Italian culture uh, in Europe. Um, one figure that I also want to, maybe perhaps is uh, worth mentioning, is Thomas Cromwell. 
So uh, we know that Thomas, Thomas Cromwell spent time in Italy, um, um, in Rome, that he was connected with uh, uh, Florentine merchants. And so, uh, in fact, the, my book starts with Thomas Cromwell, and I argue that it's Thomas Cromwell who had the idea of uh, hiring uh, refugees in order to uh, deal with the diplomatic crisis opened by Henry VIII's break with Rome. So I think uh, uh, Thomas Cromwell, I would say, he was another intermediary, another crucial figure in this uh, Italianization, in this Anglo-Italian world. But you also um, uh, mentioned the problem of exile. Uh, no, exile that um, was not a new phenomenon in the Renaissance, in the early modern period. The Tre Corone wrote in, in exile. And so um, uh, perhaps another detail that I uh, can highlight is the um, uh, inscription that Castelvetro used uh, to personalize his, uh, this collection of Venetian relazioni. So Castelvetro used a famous um, citation from the first book of the Aeneid, Forsenet ecolim me minisse juvabit. Perhaps one day you will delight your remembering these events. And this is also a text that um, is about exile, is about the wandering of the Trojans, is the moment in which uh, Aeneas uh, tries to um, uh, encourage the Trojans after the shipwreck. And so I think there, uh, in Castelvetro, in many other exiles, there was a, um, a very, um, uh, an attempt to, um, they identify themselves, not only in the Tre Corone, but in other um, ancient texts that speak of exile. Your start with, starting with Cromwell also suggests a, a, a difference because of the religious persecution being, being a systemic feature going forward from, from the period of Henry VIII, mm -hmm. right? So that there's um, that, that element, the, the, the Reformation part of the subtitle, which is the one we haven't talked about, <laughs> uh, it ends up being quite crucial for the periodization mm -hmm. that you're proposing, I, yeah. I take it. Yeah, and so as I, as, I, as I said very briefly, I think that the, uh, the, the reason, the main cause of this diplomatic crisis was the Reformation. The diplomatic crisis between Venice and England began uh, with the uh, Henry VIII's break with Rome and then um, um, culminated in the election of Elizabeth. Elizabeth was uh, never fully recognized by Rome, by um, parts of Catholic Europe, was even excommunicated. And so even Venice, which always had a degree of independence from Rome, but Venice could not uh, um, have official diplomatic relations with uh, England. And so I think Venice, um, sometimes very consciously, also used these uh, unofficial ambassadors to uh, keep um, uh, communication open with England. And um, so I focus on this case study. I decided to focus on Venice in England, but this is not something that is unique. So we find uh, other examples of network diplomacy in the early modern period. For example, in the, um, before the Battle of uh, Lepanto, uh, Venice did not want to join the Holy League and no intention of joining the Holy League, wanted to stay in good terms with the Ottomans, and so um, uh, sent uh, uh, this uh, Venetian merchant that you can see on the cover of the book, Giacomo Ragazzoni, to Constantinople in order to um, uh, obtain a peace treaty. 
this uh, unofficial Venetian ambassador was discovered by papal diplomacy. And so as a result, Venice was forced to join the Holy League and to participate in the war against the Ottomans. But the, I think the, um, something that I found extremely interesting is to recover the, the complexity of diplomatic interaction, the many layers in which diplomatic interaction took place. Okay, um, I was just wondering if you could speak more a bit about the afterlife of the refugee diplomat um, in terms of your case study and like what happens to this informal network once formal diplomatic relations are reestablished um, and how how the formalization affects it. That's a very important point, thank you. Uh, so I, I, I decided to conclude my book uh, with a final chapter on the reestablishment of formal diplomatic relations with James I. And so uh, I think there is, a, there is a final moment in the early 17th century uh, with Paolo Sarpi, with the Venetian interdetto, in which there is a hope for a, um, um, another hope of introducing the reformation into Italy. But uh, rapidly, um, um, refugees realized that James had no intention of intervening into Italy. He wants to uh, set a peace with Spain. And so their, uh, the hopes of these refugees met with a very um, with profound disillusionment in the, in the early 17th century. But uh, if I can add only one um, thing on hopes, one of the um, um, points that I try to make in this book is also to rethink diplomatic history, not only as the history of events, as political and military events, but also as the history of hopes. So uh, I try to look at the uh, early modern period as another present with hopes and expectations, trying to recover also the hopes that never materialized, such as the hopes of these refugees of transforming Venice in an Italian Geneva. Great. Um, I think we have time for one very brief question and answer. <clears throat> yes. Thank you for all of this. This is uh, immensely interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know what the quality of the Protestantism was of refugees who are imagining that Venice, uh, Venice would become a Geneva, um, particularly the Germans who are, are, are they thinking of the increasingly rigidifying official uh, orthodoxies of German states? Or are they thinking more of a, a set of heterodox idea, ideas that are more typical of the reception of Luther in Italy overall? So uh, that, that, that's an interesting uh, problem. So um, um, throughout the book, uh, I started in the 1530s and I concluded a century later, I, I had to examine refugees with very different religious beliefs. So, um, for example, the, um, in the 1540s, there was an Italian philo-protestant who was the secretary of the uh, English ambassador in Venice uh, named Baldassare Altieri, and he was uh, a Lutheran. He, was a, he corresponded with Luther, and um, Lutheranism was his point of reference. But then uh, later on in the century, um, other refugees had different religious beliefs, and so uh, many of them, like Alberico Gentili or Giacomo Castelvetro, they, um, they were also uh, sometimes um, 
the not always approved Calvinist. And, they, and sometimes they um, um, look back at uh, Erastianism as a way to um, reorganize the relationship between church and state. So many of them believe that the only a strong political power could bring to an end the age of religious wars. Thank you, Diego. Thank you, Thank you for the book. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.